Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Great to have you with us. It's myself, Panel Beater and Dr. Sharma and Neo, Dr. Neo in the studio together and we were just checking the last time the three of us were here in the studio was indeed march 22 2020 it's uh, good to know you guys just haven't been a figment of my skype imagination it appears dr sharma has actually forgotten how to be in the studio he's got two mics in front of him <laughs> he uh... that was an interesting moment from the well, side well, of well, well funny enough the reason i've got two now is because about 10 seconds ago i had no microphones in front of me and i went oh i need to speak into something and i don't know which one to get so i've got two <laughs> Well, you're going to have to make a decision in a minute. <laughs> good to see you both. Uh, it's good to be back in the in the studio, in the flesh. Yeah. Uh, it was a bit surreal walking in here. I felt like I was in the wrong room, but the you know, yeah. truth is I've never been in a more right room. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful to have you. We've got a huge show coming up. Um, we've got a, a, our special guest is um, uh, Bill Botel, a... Um, a, 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 a an Australian expert, world-renowned, um, and he'll be talking to us about a book that he's just published through Monash University Press um, called Unmasked, The uh, Politics of Pandemics. We'll be coming to that uh, very, very shortly. Dr Sharma, you've been catching up on some vaping news. That's right. Uh, you know, as COVID does, just sucks up all the, uh, the oxygen for all the other news. And I heard some news reports recently that schools are clamping down on, on vaping devices. And I decided to ha- have a look at that space again, particularly in the context of adolescents and, and students. So we'll be talking about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it, we've touched on vaping in a couple of different ways um, before, but we've never really come at it from that angle. And while I was thinking about it in the, in the lead up, I remember, you know how smoking is such an act of defiance? To, mm. to parents, and I'm wondering whether vaping has that same act of defiance or if there's something else at play. I think it does, and uh, the question for me is if we can learn from our you know, mistakes, I suppose, in terms of uh, uh, smoking and our approach to that, and perhaps we can blunt that effect if we are trying to discourage uh, vaping in young people. Yeah. Or are we just going to crack down it hard like we did with smoking and just have the reverse effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, great. Really looking forward to that. And uh, Dr. Neo, all the way back from being our rural and regional correspondent, Mildura, <laughs> what's ahead? Uh, I'm going to be discussing um, something COVID-related, sorry, Dr. Sharma, about um, the indirect impact of COVID uh, on low, the children of low- and middle-income countries. It's very specific, but it's quite an interesting topic and one that's getting quite overlooked at the moment. So I thought it would just uh, get a bit of airtime. Yeah, yeah. And there's some matters around that that are quite distinct for middle- and lower-income countries that don't necessarily mm. play out here, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, as a bit of a teaser... Uh, one of the big things is measles vaccinations, and it's just uh, yeah. something that we don't really think about in a high-income country because why would we? We get vaccinated as a as a young child; everyone does, and that's that's that. But in uh, these lower middle-income countries, it's a much more difficult uh, concept, and uh, they're currently suffering quite badly because of uh, disruptions to their vaccination schedules. Yeah, right. We'll be getting to that around about um, half past the hour, I reckon. Um, but Let's get uh, the ball rolling and get uh, Bill Botel on the phone. We'll be right back talking politics and pandemics. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Welcome back, Radiotherapy, with myself, uh, Panel Beater, Dr Sharma and Neonatal. We're very lucky to have um, our next guest, uh, Bill Botel, join us to talk about his recently published book, Pandemics, um, I beg your pardon, uh, that unmasked the politics of pandemics out now through Monash University Press. Many people will know Bill Botel as um, Australia's foremost health policy strategist and former senior advisor to the Australian Health Minister and uh, among the architects of Australia's world-renowned world response to the emergence of HIV-AIDS seemingly a lifetime ago. Um, good morning, Bill Botel. 
Good morning, Kent, and what a pleasure it is to be back in Melbourne for the first time in a year. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're, I think a lot of us are ticking off firsts. Uh, for example, the three of us here in the studio are back together for the first time since this time yeah. last year as well. Really wonderful to have you on Triple uh, R and Radiotherapy, and congratulations on the publication of the book. I'm noticing it's getting a bit of attention around town. Yes, I'm glad. I'm glad. We've got to, we've got to really think hard about what we did well and what we did uh, badly and uh, correct the mistakes and uh, make sure that we don't uh, repeat them again. We can't go keep going through this uh, yeah. in the way that we have. <laughs> the lesson learned, you know, um, easier said than done perhaps, but uh, yeah. lesson learned is what we're about. Um, let's use as a starting point uh, the little riff that comes uh, right off the bat in your book where you state... Um, I think I've got the exact quote right. Nature creates viruses, politics creates pandemics, and pandemics creates new politics. Uh, that sounds to me like a, a real starting point for an understanding of you know, an inevitable tension between scientists, health practitioners, and policy and uh, politics. Not to mention the other uh, grab bag of experts in fields like education, the economy, and so on. Uh, is that what you're getting at when you're saying pandemics creates new politics? Yeah, well, where we get to with uh, viruses is they, they attack humanity every second, right? And they have for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, most of them do no harm. They come and go and uh, nothing, nothing much happens. But every so often, one of them gets a grasp. One of them gets away into the body's immune systems and we have a problem. But they're not zombie invaders from outer space. They're not inevitable uh, deals of death and destruction. That comes when people make the wrong decisions in government, predominantly, about what to do or what not to do to respond to the challenge. And I was involved in the AIDS response uh, 30, 40 years ago when shocking decisions were made by some of the governments of the world, including the American administration at that time to say it was God's punishment and mm. they had a whole lot of political um, uh, bad decisions and branding and so on that was made and that transformed what was always a manageable problem. HIV was not even like COVID. It wasn't very infectious and it didn't transmit easily relative to other viruses. Yet they made terrible mistakes and out of that we got a pandemic that so far killed about 35 million people. And I regret that we... In, in many countries, the poor political decision-making that followed the emergence of COVID uh, at the end of 2019, those decisions are what created the mess that we have in so much of the world today, not the virus. The problem is not the virus, it's the response. And then, of course, once you work your way through, then some governments and some people take advantage of a crisis to impose political and economic measures uh, that they would never get away with in uh, more normal times. And we've seen evidence of that around the world as well. So it's all linked together, but right at the core of it is we can prevent the transmission of viruses, we can prevent their emergence, and we can deal with it in a sane and sensible way if we want to. Bill, it's um, Dr Neo here. So I think that um, your point goes on uh, quite well to... I've what I see is a central theme of your book where politics believes truth is relative, whereas science believes it's quite objective. Uh, and my main question that I think a lot of our listeners um, would want to know is why does a public health issue become political? Why are we putting ultimate decision-making ability in the hands of what is effectively an unexperienced and untrained politician? Well, uh in, in one sense, of course, our democracy works because uh, we have generalists as politicians. But what's extremely important, if we give them that power, is that the advice they receive from scientists and doctors and so on is perfectly transparent, is open to contest and debate, uh, that the advice that's going to them is not uh, adjusted or rigged or measured uh, against some other set of criteria behind closed doors uh, so that uh, the actions that are taken are not the actions that would be recommended if we just uh, adopted or if we adopted the proper scientific approach to the virus. Uh, so the politics and the economics gets mixed up with the scientific facts of the virus. Some countries a year ago just looked at it as what it is uh, the virus is a, just an expression of physics, chemistry, biology, the iron laws of the universe, basically, and mathematics. 
it can only be dealt with by using those laws against it. The countries that decided that there was some other way of negotiating with the virus, that they were very smart politicians, that we didn't have to shut down the economy and could keep the international travel system working, they paid a terrible price. The the countries paid a shocking price in death and destruction. So we have to, and, and I think as we look forward, not just to pandemics, but climate change is a perfect example of that. Uh, molecules of carbon dioxide are molecules of carbon dioxide. They can only be dealt with by the application of the laws of science. So we, we, we have gone as far as we can with trying to pretend for political reasons that these things are not threats and that they can't do enormous damage. Uh, I think it's a, hopefully a lesson we'll learn from the chaos and uh, shocking upheaval that's been created by the mishandling of the response to, uh, to COVID in the world. Bill, it's Viom here, Dr. Sharma, just to introduce my recent Hi, conversation here. Hey, Bill. Um, well, you, you very rightly pointed to what things were like a year ago, and roughly about a year ago, it was WHO very tentatively finally agreed that we should declare this a pandemic. And one of the things that I realised just you know, reading over your book was that there's just been politics, obviously, at, at every level. We're very familiar at the level of, of Australia, but thinking back to a year ago when you know, you're quite rightly saying there was reluctance in some nations to lockdown, some not, and the WHO was, I suppose, dithering a bit. What do you think were perhaps some really key moments of this virus turning into a pandemic that were you know, political, thinking back to that time ago? What are the big points that stick out to you? Look, uh, it, it emerged sometime at the end of November-ish in China, and there was certainly a lot of dithering uh, for weeks as they tried to sort out what was happening, because, as you know, Vion, I mean, uh, somebody presenting with the early stages of coronavirus infection did look like cold and influenza. So it does take some time, but they did remove remarkably quickly by the beginning of 2020 to uh, understand what was going on and to alert the world. And then it was very interesting that the China and the countries in Asia, Taiwan, Vietnam, so on, who had a memory of the SARS epidemic moved extraordinarily swiftly in February to shut down. And I think Taiwan shut the cruise industry down in the beginning of February. They did all of the surveillance at the airports. They started to restrict travel, and they did all of that uh, very rapidly. Now, in Australia, we did shut down travel from China, which was a very good idea because the virus can only move as fast as people move and moves in the international air transport system. But during February, we didn't shut down travel from the UK and Europe, and we, we kept the borders open effectively. And that allowed the virus uh, to come in. So uh, the swift action that was taken uh, at the end of January, beginning of February in the Asian countries, if it had been taken in Europe, UK, the United States, they would have had a much less severe problem. But they did nothing. They just said, it's not going to be a problem. And if it is, we can manage it. Uh, They thought that it was like influenza, I think. Yeah. rather than a new virus. And that was a critical error because, as we saw in Australia, once it starts going up um, exponentially, uh, you can go from OK to a shocking outcome just in the blink of an eye. And once it's in and established, then you've got uh, all the problems that we know and that we've seen. So there, there, was, there were problems of actions, and there were problems of inaction. And, of course, we were dreadfully, dreadfully ill-served by the fact that at the top of the world system, in the White House, we had the president and the administration that we did who concocted every sort of nonsensical political (laughs) argument about what was going on and why, but never got round to protecting uh, their own people and really put a big spoke in the wheel of the international response, it has to be said. Yeah, Bill, so I completely agree that the American American system, uh, as the international powerhouse that it is, has um, somewhat stunted the the rest of the world's response to this pandemic. But you also highlight in your book, and just before, that uh, Australia had somewhat of a false start to the pandemic, you know, fumbling at some points. Notably, we actually shipped very large quantities of PPE from our national stockpile to China, which was yep. seen as um, a bit of an altruistic move at the time, but um, ultimately may have uh, caused more harm than good. Um, 
Do you think we, as a nation, have learnt from these mistakes? You mentioned Taiwan having responded very well to SARS previously. Will we be prepared for the next pandemic? Or will no, complacency no, take No, no. What happened in Australia was really remarkable, I have to say. I think the federal government was taking its cue from the United Kingdom and the United States. They were lulled into a false sense of security to believe it was like an influenza when it wasn't, and that they had time to respond. They could wait and see what happened and then do something, as you typically do with influenza. Uh, However, as February turned into March last year, I think it's pretty clear the Australian people woke up to it. They saw the news from Italy and China and America. They saw the great toilet paper shortage, which (laughs) was a an indication of panic buying, really, and people concerned. And the stock market collapsed. And believe me, that really, when the stock markets go down, you've got shortages in the supermarkets, the people started to realise something very bad was coming. The big businesses in the CBDs, to their great credit, a lot of them started saying to people, stay at home. That all culminated in that week of about mid-March, when uh, you might recall the Prime Minister was going off to the football and uh, there were all sorts of different edicts about gatherings and size of gatherings and hairdressers could and couldn't open and so on. It became very confused. But to their great credit, the premiers who listened to the people and to the public health systems, to all of those doctors and clinicians and nurses and carers and the people who run our hospitals and the great Australian public health system, that communicated itself to the premiers and chief ministers. And on the 22nd of March, to their great credit, they forced the issue and they locked the country down. So, Bill... That that was not in the planning of the federal government at the time. Yeah, that leads actually quite well into my next question. So, uh, is that, in your opinion, what would the impact of having a national rather than state-based public health strategy be? That is, if uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was the commander-in-chief, if you will. Well... Back in the days of AIDS, uh, when I worked for Dr Blewett and all of those great political leaders who sorted out how we responded to AIDS, they were were very strong on one national response. It was run at the federal government level. They took responsibility for public health and for the outcomes, and they funded the states and territories and mobilised opinion and all of the things, which I personally think is the best way to go, uh, one national response. But the national response has to be the right response. So what we saw a year ago was the national response was not up to the task and the threat that was coming, and the states seized the initiative to their great credit, and the outcomes have been that much better. I mean, uh, we've got pretty much elimination of zero-zero strategies. We had a, a, a big blip, to put it mildly, in Victoria, but in Victoria, they got it under control in the end, and we're a much healthier and happier place a year later for having virtually zero local infections than we would be if today we were talking in Paris or London or New York or Berlin. So it all worked out well in the end, but it was too close and there was far too much confusion and we cannot do it again because we're not out of the woods at the moment. Uh, who knows what will come along with these variants? But inevitably, inevitably, as sure as night follows day, there is going to be another viral pandemic emerge somewhere, sometime. Mm. And we we should upgrade our public health structures to prevent that. We should pay a lot more than we do for public health. It's only about 2% of the budgets of the health budgets of Australia goes to public health and prevention. And we can make ourselves that much stronger and more resilient against the next one and manage it a lot better than we did this one, even though I think thanks to the people in the public health systems and tremendous commitments and the, the people who staff the hotel quarantine system and so on, mm. we got, we've, got, we've done extremely well and New Zealand has done very well. So that's great, but let's not kid ourselves that it happened uh, uh, because we had exactly the right strategies and we're moving <laughs> when we ought to have to head it off at the pass. Bill, it, it does appear that it's probably the first time in a long while, maybe ever, that most Australians were reminded we live in a federation um, rather than uh, a, a single nation state. Um, 
Yeah. The way that I observed a lot of that um, interplay between the feds and the states was very political in nature, not, you know, to return it to this theme of the, the contest between science and health um, expertise versus the political nature of things. Is, is that how you're seeing it as well? Well, the states did well, I think, broadly, because they believed and acted on the science and the chief medical officers of the states were critical in doing that. Uh, and they saw that, very simply, if you restricted the mobility of people and you used masks and did quite simple behavioural things, what you did was you restricted the movement of the virus, you brought it down to zero, and importantly, you gave yourself time until science came along with something better, which it has in terms of vaccines and other things. So that critical period of doing as least damage as possible for the months it took to sort everything out was the right way to go. You, you might recall a year ago, there was a lot of talk in some of the press and business people saying, well, we, either we could have public health good outcomes or we could have the economy fine, yeah. but we couldn't have both. Now, this was just a completely false dichotomy. It was just rubbish. Mm. The countries that fell for that and allowed uh, economics and politics to overwhelm the public health response, the United Kingdom, the United States, Brazil, so on and so forth, their economies collapsed, <laughs> collapsed in a heap. The UK economy went down 10%. The countries that got the public health right, unsurprisingly, uh, their economies compared to others have done extremely well. And uh, even in Australia, I don't know, it's a lot of people listening would love to be travelling internationally at the moment, but two and a half, three million Australians didn't go abroad last year because of it. Mm. But a lot of that spending and, 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 and so on was redirected within the states. Uh, we did very well. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but at least, uh, you know, the economies didn't fall through the floor. And, of course, a lot of people didn't get sick. And, unfortunately, a 1,000 people or so contracted the disease and died, but it could have been many multiples of that if we had uh, fallen for the argument that we had to protect the economy with the lives of Australian citizens and taxpayers. So that would have been pretty silly. Bill, there's some really positive uh, impacts and lessons that uh, you know I'm kind of surmising from everything you're, you're saying. For example, I think uh, that perhaps this public recognition that it's not this dichotomy of health versus economics, and perhaps this is something that's going the voters are going to remember. And also, uh, like you're saying, the platforming of, of science being at the forefront of the conversation and the leadership of the of the state chief health officers. So moving forward, I mean, are you, are you kind of optimistic? That, that, that these uh, these two factors and all these other lessons are going to help us negotiate the future challenges with with, with variants and future pandemics, and I think you even mentioned um, climate change earlier. So, yeah, how do you feel as, as a nation who's gone well, who's learned a few positive lessons? What, what's your general feeling about our future and how we'll negotiate these challenges? Okay, I learned forty years ago of the immense common sense and uh, tolerance and decency of the Australian people broadly. Right? I, uh, it was remarkable how we secured those outcomes way back then. And the thing that makes me optimistic in the last year is, again, to put our trust and faith in the common sense of the people, not, at the, not the top people coming out with media releases and telling them, do this, do that, but the common sense of people in the last year has been remarkable. And it's down to them that we've had zero, zero sustained, established and sustained. And that's been good for everybody. In a funny way, by in the last year, every Australian has been in Australia. And the pandemic has actually riveted people for a year. And, see, and they have come to see some of the strengths of our system, but some of the weaknesses of it. And I'm very sure that people have just about had enough with the weaknesses and the politicisation of things that ought not to be politicised, particularly public health. But uh, because people have been thinking and looking and seeing what works and what doesn't. And the political leaders uh, who have responded to that best in a political way uh, have, have been uh, acknowledged and rewarded because they're doing 
pretty much what the people want. So I think the people uh, should exert themselves a lot more in the coming months uh, and years when we deal with these big existential crises, pandemics, climate change, and the sort of country that we want to live in. Now, I don't want to live in a country that's like America, a neoliberal uh, nightmare, which it's become. Uh, I don't want to live in a country where the public health system is uh, deconstructed and, uh, and made useless uh, because there's no profit in it. Uh, we've seen the consequences of that play out around the world. I don't think most Australians want that either. Uh, so these big issues have been at least placed on the agenda and I think it's important now that out of the people come forward the, the new politicians who say, well, we're not going to go back to the system we had before. Uh, we're going to do something a lot better, a lot bigger and a lot bolder. And if we do that, then, uh, you know, I'm optimistic people are getting that message, and particularly young people, because they've been really yeah. clobbered by this. Uh, they were the people who were... Uh, broadly kept out of the job keeper arrangements, uh, who were gig economy workers, uh, well-off people in good postcodes, uh, sailed through it pretty well, as you would expect. But the young, the marginal, old, uh, uh, non-English-speaking uh, workers, they paid a disproportionately heavy price, even in Australia, for what has gone on. I don't think that's good enough now. We've got to change that. Bill, I'm sorry to say that we very quickly have come to time, but I, I really pick up on that um, that claim of optimism around um, around what Australians are capable when they start putting their thinking caps on and responding to in the way that you've been talking us through. And um, and indeed, as somebody who's just uh, spent the first couple of weeks of semester in classrooms with some young people who were severely affected last year, your point about the impact on them is, is really well made. I really appreciate you joining us and our audience this morning on Radiotherapy, Bill. Thanks so much, Ken. Thank you to all your listeners. Thank you. We've been talking with Bill Botel, who's recently published um, Unmasked, the Politics of Pandemics, out on Monash University Press as part of a new series that they're publishing um, called In the National Interest. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Welcome back um, to Radiotherapy. Um, Dr Neo, mm. you've been looking at some um, um, global health. Yeah. In particular, some of the impact of COVID-19 and not the virus specifically, no. but the consequence of its presence on other health matters. Exactly. So I thought I'd look into uh, how COVID has impacted indirectly the children of low and middle income countries. So, you know, with the advent of a global pandemic, much of the attention was naturally focused on the direct impact of this novel virus and the impact it's having on individuals. And then in turn, the vast efforts being made to prevent its spread. As the globe progressed further into strict lockdowns, social isolation, we began to witness the unavoidable impacts of health and well-being that accompanies the cessation of healthcare services and global interruptions to trade and movement. Although thankfully, COVID appears to rarely impact children to the severity that we are seeing it in the adult patient population, there is an evolving awareness of the indirect effects of COVID-19 is having on the overall health of children. Although we'll be unlikely to see uh, and quantify the impact uh, this is having for a number of years, the indirect effects of COVID-19 will be compounded in low and middle income countries where governments and health systems have a reduced ability to respond to COVID and we're already experiencing widespread issues with child health care. So, for example, I want to look into vaccination um, in low and middle income countries specifically where many are facing a public health crisis that existed long before COVID uh, and one that many high income countries have the privilege of seeing effective eradication of over the past few years, which is measles. So uh, for those who don't know, uh, measles has an effective reproduction number of around 12 to 18, which means that for every one person infected, they can expect to pass it on to 12 to 18 other people in a population with no immunity. And um, the mortality rate is around 3 to 6%, but it has 
been seen to spike to 30% in the worst outbreaks and the ability... Mm. Um, and it does have some long-standing detrimental impacts on an individual's immune system. So... Uh, measles just generally has the ability to be devastating to populations that lack immunity to it. Yet we have an incredibly, incredibly effective vaccine that after two doses you get immunity um, and that's that uh, works for most of the population. Like it's so why why is it an issue? Well, unfortunately, even before COVID, uh, many lower middle income countries had inadequate vaccination rates with children if they were lucky only receiving a single dose of the vaccine, which provides a limited and often incomplete immune response. Uh, although the reasons for this are multifaceted, including political, financial, even simply logistical, uh, COVID has added an additional layer of complexity. Now, this is, uh, these stats are probably a few months old, but at least 23 countries have suspended measles vaccination campaigns, meaning that 78 million children will not be vaccinated as planned. These campaigns uh, were suspended to help stem the spread of COVID-19 and allow for healthcare resources to be funneled towards the global pandemic. But indirectly, COVID has placed uh, tens of millions of children at risk of what is fundamentally a preventable infection. Now, this is massive, isn't it? Because measles, as you said, has a very high reproduction number you know, and it can, you know, one person infected can infect 18 others. And what that means is that to stop the spread of this disease, to achieve herd immunity, you actually need something around, I think, 95% of people to be vaccinated. You need a very high vaccination rate in the community to be able to control this. So if you get even a modest drop in the number of people vaccinated, this thing is going to spread. And if we're talking about countries that have suspended entire programs for measles vaccination, geez, that's a big problem. And unsurprisingly, where we're seeing these suspensions are Africa, mm. the Middle East, South American countries, the, the countries who uh, unfortunately can't afford to be suspending these programs because they can't effectively respond to mass uh, mass outbreaks like a place like metropolitan Melbourne can. And we do see outbreaks occasionally in high-income countries, often in uh, distinct populations where uh, vaccination rates are lower. Uh, but as a high-income country, we can effectively respond and provide the adequate health care to these children um, so that the impact is relatively limited. Just a really fine example of how just focusing on COVID as a narrow <laughs> issue is always going to be a problem in the medium long term. Yeah, and uh, so that like I could go on for for days on this topic, <laughs> but another of the issues that I wanted to to particularly focus on was uh, the family impact. So for any child, some of the fundamental aspects to a happy and healthy life is a secure family free of fear and violence and having enough food on the table. This is just basic stuff that we expect every single child should, ha should have. Um, and it's often taken for granted, but unfortunately often lost in, hardship and, in times of hardship and distress. This is particularly true in lower-income countries, again, as highlighted by a recent study exploring the impact of COVID lockdown on rural Bangladeshi families. So incredible, 96% of respondents in this, uh, this region of Bangladesh saw a reduction in paid work in the family mm. with a proportion mm. of families earning less than $1.90 per day and it's families earning less than $1.90 per day increasing from 0.2% to 47.3%. This was accompanied by an increase in uh, food insecurity maternal depression and anxiety, and emotional, physical, and sexual intimate part of partner violence. And, you know, I don't really need to go into it. It isn't hard to see um, the or imagine the impact that these changes to family life is likely to have on children growing up in these households. Yeah. And, I mean, we're obviously orientating it around uh, some sense of, of an opportunity cost decision. It's either spend money and attention on X or spend money and attention on exactly. Y. Can't do both. Um, what does science say to that? You know, if we, if, well, you know, resources are finite and these are poor countries and they do have to make a decision, you know, mm. about their, how they spend their resources. What do you know? Well, about, well, that's a really good question because, you know, it's a impossible catch 22. Lockdown and social distancing is being used as an effective non-pharmacological management. We now have <coughs> vaccinations, uh, to add on to that, but, Clearly, it has a devastating and widespread impact uh, that it will have ramifications for years. D 
Does that mean that we stop lockdown and social distancing and vac- and uh, focusing our attention on vaccination for COVID? No, of course not. But we have to balance that with putting more money into global health programs yeah. that can focus on these regions. So it's these regions are forgotten. They are... Uh, yeah. They're out of the public mind, you know, out of sight, out of mind. These children are going to be have been suffering for years. They're going to continue suffering. But putting a little bit more attention on yeah. them, putting a little bit more money their way, allowing these vaccination programs to restart in a COVID safe. That's manner. right. I should self-correct. Really, the you know, I say something like resources are finite, and and for the Bangladesh government, it certainly is resources yes. are finite. But there's no shortage of global wealth no. um, that could capture this and address it. Right? Mm-hmm. Dr. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And I guess part of the problem is you know, that opportunity cost. Uh, 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 kind of trade-off that we're referring to that only occurs because they are starting from so far behind. So we've got an opportunity to, to, to perhaps alter that dynamic into the future. But even now, immediately, um, uh, I think this is what the WHO is arguing for through the COVAX facility that we then focus vaccination and give you know, much greater priority to yeah. low-middle-income countries yeah. so we can very rapidly start to reverse this. Whereas, as we're seeing right now with the vaccination rollout, this is just not what's happening mm. at all. Um, I feel you know, quite selfish. You, 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 well, I quite stridently will argue that we as Australia need to get as many vaccines as possible as quickly as possible, and yet... You know, I, I suppose we're all a bit complicit in that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, PNG, we're seeing what's happening there. Um, uh, uh, panel B, and I know you've been keeping up to date on that. And uh, right next to us, and uh, you know, people even like me, completely and, and you're right. out of our mind. The the impact that COVID is having on PNG compared to what it's currently having in Australia, I I get my vaccine in about an hour. Like I'm lucky enough to to get my vaccine in one hour's time, yet. There are hundreds and thousands of healthcare workers in PNG who are treating COVID nineteen patients, and uh, they are not vaccinated. They will not be vaccinated anytime in the near future, and they're going to continue suffering. So, I mean, should I feel? I feel quite bad about that. Well, it, yeah, and you're really returning to the central point. It shouldn't be an either or. We, you know, we've got the global resources to do both of those things. You know, we can keep people like yourself, who's a frontline worker, vaccinated, and keep an eye on uh, on our neighbours at P and G. You know, that that statistic that uh, came through a day or two ago, where the Queensland Health Ministry went up there, they did a spot test um, of 500 and returned 250 positives. Uh, And this is in a population of 9 million. It's scary, Mm. yeah, just on our doorstep. Hey, um, Dr Neo, just by way of um, bringing us to a a neat and tidy uh, bow here, um, you mentioned off the bat that um, it's going to be a while before we know the full impact Mm. of this. Um, Are we talking 10 years, 15 years? It's hard to tell because things like measles vaccinations programs, we're now seeing a deficit, so... The children who would have been vaccinated over this past year, year and a half, will now need to be vaccinated in the coming years when these programs start. But that doesn't stop families having children and uh, more people needing to be vaccinated as we're seeing it. So, uh, populations are in exponential, in exponential growth. Like It's almost impossible to tell how long yeah, right. we will need to recover from this. Hmm, it, it doesn't bear, bode well, though, does and it? No, especially with things like family violence. These things have long-term impacts on health and well-being. It's one of the yeah. fundamental things of growing up. Uh, the impacts will be almost unmeasurable on uh, these children and future adults. So, I mean, guess watch the space. Thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Neo. Keeping um, a little attention on some of the global health issues in Australia as a global citizen, I guess. Um, you're on Radiotherapy uh, with myself, panel beater, Dr. Sharma, and Neo Nadal there with his paediatric hat on. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. 
Dr. Sharma, something's caught your eye regarding vaping. That's right. So it wasn't the first, but maybe the second or third story that I'd seen of schools around Australia, uh, so-called clamping down on vaping, uh, teachers confiscating vaping devices, uh, even word of people doing bag searches. And I realised that I'd not been focusing on this issue at all. Um, and yeah, vaping is still something that's, I guess, quite new. So a lot of the harms had been unknown, but yeah. Things move along and uh, research has been accumulating. And so I saw a, a really surprisingly strongly worded uh, statement from the Therapeutic Goods Administration about vaping that really caught my eye. Uh, and long story short, the very claim that's being used to promote vaping by lobbyists is actually now being somewhat contra- uh, contradicted by uh, by the TGA. So before we go on, just a few definitions. When we're talking about vaping, it fits under the umbrella of things we called e-cigarettes, electronic cigarettes, these things that uh, use a liquid to make a vapour that you inhale to kind of mimic cigarettes in some way. And the liquids can contain flavouring agents and stabilisers and heavy metals, and some of them contain uh, nicotine, some don't. Um, and, and I suppose the way they are marketed and promoted is that firstly it's just a recreational substance that people can use like alcohol or cigarettes or anything else but secondly and this is the really interesting one um, it's uh, being promoted as something that you could perhaps substitute uh, for smoking uh, that might even help you quit smoking if you wanted to because the kind of prevailing wisdom seems to be that they are in theory less harmful than cigarettes so there's a lot of kind of pushback against this there's been a lot of uh, discussion about potential harms of this very new thing, which of course it's, it's hard to tell when something's new. Um, but in the last, I think, five years, we've had more and more research. So there's a, a few things we can say about its harms with some confidence. So we know that it can definitely cause some direct lung injury. We also know that it contains chemicals that we call our carcinogens, that is, can cause cancer. What we can't tell you is the magnitude of these harms. We can't tell you how likely it is to cause cancer. We can't tell you exactly what percentage of people will get direct lung injuries. We have some data, but we don't know know, with with some sense of finality what that's going to kind of be. So there's many kind of takes on this, but the thing that's really been fascinating me is how much adolescents in Australia have been getting into this. So um, a recent Australian survey showed that despite the fact that kids in Australia can't vape and can't be sold devices, one in six have tried it, and off this one in six... 30% 30% of them have used it within the last month. And of course, you know, think back to several years ago, 0% of people were using it because there is none. Um, and and this is potentially a bit of a problem because we've got some of those harms that I spoke about, but also the unknown, unknown harms um, is, as well. So there's always been this bit of concern about vaping that, hey, maybe it could lead to people smoking more cigarettes because you're kind of making, if you know what I mean, if you, if you, the, the hand motion's the same, you're sticking this, you know, like cigarette-like cylinder in your mouth and you're exhaling these kind of plumes of, 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 of vapour. Um, are we just making this kind of normalised? And this was a bit of a theoretical concern, but uh, the Therapy of Good, Goods Administration just a few months ago released a very strongly worded statement, and it says, citing evidence from the Irish Health Review Boards and European Commissions, that uh, there is strong evidence that e-cigarettes are a gateway to smoking for young people. And also cited a report from the Australian National University that non-smokers who use e-cigarettes are consistently more likely than non-e-cigarette users to initiate cigarette smoking and they said that we regard this evidence as independent, credible, consistent and relevant. I mean, for something that was just kind of a bit of a theoretical harm not so many years ago, I don't know how much more firmer they could be saying that this is just a bad idea for for adolescents. It's it's not a hard leap. Like, you've got this, what is effectively seen as a cigarette. It's basically a cigarette. You're right, same hand motion, same effect. It's flavoured to make it attractive to children. This is very reminiscent of... It's like the uh, island coolers of cigarettes. Well, it's like (laughs) camel cigarettes. So, you know, back in the 50s where they used to have this big, like, attractive, uh, fun mascot for these cigarette companies to make it more effectively uh, marketed towards children. 
And it's fascinating to see how the companies can jump around regulations. So you can't market directly, but you can go with flavours. And, well, look, maybe you can't even do social media ads now, but if influencers use it, well, that's legal. Or if that's being clamped down on, if, you know, there's, there's all ways that they can get at this very young audience. And going back to something you said earlier, Panel Beater, uh, it, one of the indirect bits of marketing that I suppose we can do unwillingly is that the harder you clamp down on it, uh, the, yeah. the more, I suppose, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it might be motivating. It can, it can absolutely be mo- motivating. There's a rebellious yeah. uh, kind of yeah. tint that these things can, can then develop that can potentially uh, you know, make people use it even more. So there was quite an interesting um, child health poll done by the Royal Children's Hospital uh, last year. And it found that one in three parents, so that's 31%, don't know that e-cigarettes contain toxins and chemicals. And 40% are unaware that e-cigarettes can cause death. So if the parents of these children are thinking, oh, it's a fun and everyone's doing it, why don't we buy it for, for the kids? They're asking for it. It doesn't contain any chemicals or toxins. It's fine. Uh, that is a quite, it's almost a failing on uh, our public health campaigns to, to make these parents aware that this is not a benign, fun, easy thing to do. It's not, not going to be a normal part of childhood. It is actually causing damage. That's exactly right. In fact, if you actually look at the research in Australia anyway, some we're roughly under 10% of, of kids who have uh, you know, vaped, they've gotten their device from their parents. Um, and I think part of the reason the public health response in terms of education has been slow is we know when public health edu- people want to put out advisories uh, against substances, they're very guarded, want to fit on, sit on the fence a bit, as you would with something so new. They don't want to overstate or understate mm. the harms. But now I think the research is coming in. Um, and look, it, it's definitely a huge problem. But you can imagine a few years ago when we couldn't quantify the harms or we still can't, you know, you, you hardly want to tell people that you know, this is terrible, uh, absolutely terrible, but when we know for a fact they are probably less harmful than cigarettes. Mm. But that doesn't mean there's no harm at all. Did yours? Did your ears prick up uh, as mine did with regard to that um, Irish study, was it uh, you referred to, um, where they used that, um, what I reckon is awful language in drug debates and so on, gateway to yes. things. Yeah. Like I, 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 it's great that some of the harm research is pointing to what it's pointing and how do you react to being, you know, having it described as a gateway to something else when, you know, when we're all having the debates around um, legalisation, decriminalisation of marijuana, for example, those who are resisting that change are saying, oh, it's a gateway to harder drugs and stuff like this. Totally. I actually definitely had a defensive reaction when I saw that language of, of gateway drug. And also because it can be very difficult to, to prove that uh, factually and statistically. Maybe even, dare I say, impossible. <laughs> Very possibly, exactly. Uh, so that's definitely my concern, and, and I'm very wary of uh, of overstating uh, these dangers and risks and, and chance yeah. of future use, unless we're we're kind of absolutely sure. Um, because as we see with a lot of other you know, alcohol and other drugs, it's actually decriminalising and and legalising and regulating, yeah. uh, you know, having a, a less of a focus on negativity. And uh, you know, and taking away some of that judgment yeah. is what, what tends to help regulate look, harms better. At, yeah. at the same time, you need to make sure that people are getting correct and factual information on short-term and long-term effects and allowing people to make their own decisions. But unfortunately, as you're saying, we don't know the long-term effects. We don't know what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30 years. Mm. And we don't know the impact of these on young versus old like there's so many unknowns. It makes me feel a little bit uneasy uneasy that there are so many unknowns. But you're right. Like what can we do? We don't want to put the the war on drugs uh, <laughs> language, language yeah. towards it. Um yeah, if we're going to look for correlations and the like, I wonder with those stats that you were saying about usage in adolescence, I wonder how many of them have parents who smoke or vape and if there's a distinction to be made. If the supply of the vape is coming from parents if they're purchasing it on behalf of minors. Um, they might be doing it because they don't want the kids to be smoking and they're seeing it as a, as a more attractive option. Well, that's the thing is that there's so many possible confounding factors and I think that's quite a plausible one, um, And which is why I suppose I am a bit wary of, <laughs> yeah. of languages like, like gateway drugs, you know, how many of these kids were going to smoke anyway, etc. Um, but part of the, the problem, if... 
if we are considering is this going to lead kids to, to smoking in the future, is the only way we'll know for sure is if and when that happens. Yeah. And by that point, the genie might be out of the bottle. Um, you know, there are some Australian studies that show that you know, regular smoking amongst some subset of high school kids was about 17% about 20 years ago. It's now fallen to 3%. That's a lot of good work that's been done. And yeah. you can see with the defensiveness on the part of uh, the TGA and other public health agencies, they don't want to see that go back. Yeah. I, so um, as I just alluded to a moment ago, um, just early in the semester, and of course, with, especially with the undergrads, you know, you spend a lot of the first weeks just trying to build trust with them and, and, and get them settled and comfortable. And and one of the things we do is a lot of that sort of biographical ice-breaking type stuff, especially if we're like like I am in a politics class. And we, I ask them, you know, how many of you um, are smoke? Um, how many of you drink? How many of you exercise? I do a whole lot of that sort of thing and then that then becomes material to link into the world we live in. Um, and the number of smokers is so low. Like I think in a couple of my workshops, you know, we've got 25, 30, um, zero. Mm. No one was smoking. And, and drinking has gone right down. When we start talking about disco biscuits, goes right up. <laughs> well, what I'm hoping for is a lot of the successes we've had with reducing smoking. Uh, the, the good, successful, positive bits of that is something we can apply to vaping and not repeat some of the mistakes that we had before we had a success. And you're right, it is a success. Like from my own patient experience, it's now getting increasingly rarer to see patients who are actively smoking. You, you took, ask patients about their, their smoking history. Uh, routinely on a first meeting with them and it's very common to be oh, I used to smoke but now I don't anymore that is almost 90% of the patients I see well the thing I'll hear in general practice is even if people who are currently smoking they're in the process of quitting yep. or they've just very recently relapsed so you know hopefully we can we can spin things around in that way with but, vaping and even if we don't apply the exact same rules we've got the foundation for the public health campaigns from smoking to be easily applied to vaping. We've done it before, we can do it again. Now, actually, I should mention before we go on, because otherwise we, we will get people who complain about this, uh, I understand. Uh, again, there's this argument that vaping can actually help people mm. quit smoking. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt, even the TGA acknowledges this, for many individuals, it can be the substitute and transition yeah. of smoking. Mm. But the bigger question is, what is the net population effect? Is yeah. it in the end going to get more people quitting than getting on smoking? That we still don't know. There's still more research required. Quite right. Big thanks to you, uh, Dr. Sharma, for drawing us, uh, drawing our attention to that. Um, before we let both of you go, your vaccination experience, Dr. Sharma. I saw you on socials. You got a lollipop, and you're about to get a lollipop. Is that right? Yes. Neonatal. Yes. yes. One hour's time. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, look, big thanks to you for joining us, dear listener, um, on Radiotherapy this morning. It's time for us to go. But uh, first, a big thanks to um, Bill Botel, who was in talking to us about his book, Unmask, The Politics of Pandemics. Um, check that out. It's a, it's a light read, but a very accessible read, but um, very nuanced on a complex issue. Where, where can our listeners get that? Um, it's in readings um, and online, certainly, um, uh, available. Check it uh, out. Check it out. Um if Once Around wasn't enough uh, for you today, you can catch us uh, again on um, Triple R On Demand um, via the podcast coming out in a few days. And big thanks to Max for the brilliant work that he does pulling that together. Big thanks to you, Dr. Sharma. Big thanks to you, Dr. Neo. So good to be with you uh, back here in the studio. Um, in your ears next week will be Dr. Nick and the crew. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you radiotherapy next week. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.